Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com Guess what, Will? What's that, Mango? So last summer, we took the family on a night out to the Flushing Night Market. And it's like this big Asian food fair that is so delicious. And it was one of those gorgeous summer nights. I'm sure you've had these two where the kids actually behaved. And we listened to this beautiful live music. There was like a cool breeze. We ate all sorts of foods on skewers. It was <laughs> really magical. And as it got darker and we were walking back, we ended up under the Unisphere, which is that giant globe from when the World's Fair took place in 1964. Yeah, that's the thing out in Queens. I feel like you fly right over that whenever you're coming into LaGuardia, right? Uh-huh, that's right. But as we were sitting there, you know, instead of just enjoying the moment, we immediately got our phones and started looking up the World's Fair to see what had debuted there. And, uh, and it turns out that 1964 introduced the world to electric toothbrushes, computers that would match you to international pen pals. And for some reason, DuPont sponsored this musical review called The Wonderful World of Chemistry, which I'm oh, sure wow. just that raced great. up the Billboard charts. But uh, the whole thing made me wonder, like, why haven't we done an episode on the World's Fair before? So, like, how did they start? When was their heyday? And do they still exist? So that's what we're talking about today. Let's dive in. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend Mangesh Hatteketer. And on the other side of the soundproof glass, double fisting a can of cherry Coke and a box of milk. It's actually kind of <laughs> hard to watch because this is such a strange combo, but that's our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. And if you're wondering why Tristan chose that particular combo, it's because he's celebrating his very favorite World's Fair. Honestly, Mango, I didn't know he had a favorite World's Fair, but Me he's pretty either. passionate about this. And that was, of course, the 1982 fair in Knoxville. And that's when both Cherry Coke and Boxed Milk made their public debuts. It was a banner year for beverages, Mango. Well, 
you know what else debuted at that 82 World's Fair? The Sun Sphere. And oh, wow. it was this 26-story tall tower. It had a big golden glass sphere at the top. It, it was actually the symbol of the fair that year. But Simpsons fans might remember it better as the Wig Sphere. So <laughs> Gabe reminded me of this episode where uh, Bart and his friends go on a road trip, but they choose their destination from this like outdated AAA guide, I think. And, and they wind up at the fairgrounds decades after the event. And the whole place is run down, but the caretaker offers to let them into the sun sphere so that they can see, quote, 16,000 boxes of unsold wigs. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I do remember this one. And if I recall correctly, they ended up with some pretty sharp looking wigs, if I'm not mm-hmm. mistaken. But, <laughs> That's right. You know, I actually looked into this and it turns out the sun sphere is now in much better shape than it was in that Simpsons episode. I think it was you know, back in 2007, if I'm not mistaken, it was completely renovated and restored. And and the observation deck there is actually open to the public again. So, you know, what's funny is that it's actually done much better than a bunch of other World's Fair exhibits, because, you know, while the symbols of some World Fairs have done really well for themselves, like if you think about like the Eiffel Tower or I guess the Seattle Space Needle, others have really fallen into disrepair. In fact, there's a photographer named Jade Dosko, and she spent the last decade actually documenting all the abandoned sculptures and these icons from past world fairs. And looking at her photos, you can actually see that these are still these amazing, surreal bits of history. And in a way, they're like looking at monuments to our old visions of the future, which I I find really fascinating. Yeah, it is kind of interesting how World's Fairs were once this, you know, kind of like symbolic of our hopes for the future. And and it's reverse of that now. Like we're mostly thinking of them in these nostalgic ways, kind of looking at them almost like time capsules. And, you know, their significance is really kind of flipped at this point. And instead of being all about the future, they're really more about these relics of the past. And I mean, obviously, World's Fairs in general have lost a lot of their luster over the years. But That's all going to change today, Mango, because we're we're going to take this deep dive into the history of World's Fairs, including how and why they started. And so we're going to follow Tristan's lead, and we're going to talk about a couple of our personal favorite fairs and and dip into some of the weird exhibits and and new inventions that have debuted there. But all right, Mango, why don't we start with the basics? Do do you mind just going back to the beginning and, and explaining what the World's Fair is exactly? Yeah, so it's kind of weird to think about it this way, but a World's Fair is basically an international trade show, but not one that's restricted to any single industry. So if you were to attend one, you'd see lavish exhibits from all kinds of companies and organizations from around the globe, and they'd be showing off upcoming products, you know, new scientific advancements, or just spitballing ideas for the future of agriculture or aviation or whatever. But compared to trade shows, World's Fairs cast a much wider net in terms of appealing to the public. But the fairs do have some differences from trade shows, like uh, World's Fairs aren't just trying to be commercial. They're also these high-minded adventures, you know, where they have all these aspirations for the world. Yeah, like I've sometimes heard World Fairs compared to the Olympics kind of in that regard. I mean, they're both these world-spanning events. They're meant to celebrate human achievement and camaraderie and, I guess, progress in a lot of ways. And at the same time, they highlight all the cool stuff from other cultures. Yeah, I mean, there's some other similarities to the Olympics, too, including the fact that neither of them make a bunch of money. I, I mean, the the companies at the fair would ideally make money in the long run, I guess, from the visibility and marketing they get from the fair. But for the most part, World's Fairs tend to lose money for the cities and countries that host them. In fact, you know, that 82 Knoxville Fair we were talking about, it was a rare exception in that it actually managed to turn a profit but not much of a profit. It only, I think, earned $57 in the, in the long run, which <laughs> wow. is insane. But 
I mean, the appeal of running a World's Fair has a lot more to do with, I guess, the prestige and the potential to boost tourism and in, invest in fun structures rather than actually make money off the event. So if, if, if they're money pits, like how did World's Fairs take off in the first place? So modern World's Fairs really got their start in 1851, and that's when Britain hosted the great exhibition of the works of industry of all nations in London. That's what it was called. I, f- I feel like maybe that's not quite as catchy as World's Fair. I don't know about you. <laughs> no, it's catchier, I think. But <laughs> it, it almost reminds me of like when they used to call the Super Bowl the NFL-AFL World Championship game. You right. know, like Super Bowl is so much catchier. Like, why did they think that long title would work? But uh, you, you know what's weird is we're, we're pretty much the only country to call these events World's Fairs. Uh, Great Britain describes theirs as exhibitions. Um, Most of Europe and Asia have opted to call them international expositions. And most other countries just refer to them as expos. So while those names are interchangeable, it all amounts to the same event in the end. All right. So so how are these things organized? I mean, if they're all called by different names, uh, is, is there not a single governing body that oversees these like you would find for something like the Olympics? So actually there is. It's called the Bureau of International Expositions, the BIE, and it's a Paris-based organization that's run all the shows since it was established in 1928. So they help with the scheduling for the events. Um, They set guidelines and responsibilities for the host cities. You know, it's things that the participants have to abide by. Actually, I I never knew that. But you said the first fair was in 1851. so, So who was in charge of all of this for those years before the BIE came along? Um, In in the early days, the events were mostly government enterprises, so they were organized by the rulers of whoever was hosting. So if you think about England, uh, London was actually where the first fair was held. It was actually Queen Victoria's husband, Prince Albert, who spearheaded the exhibition. He'd actually spent some time abroad in his youth, and the experience gave him the idea to host an event like this. And at the time, Parliament had actually warmed to the idea of free trade. So Albert had hoped that his exhibition would help boost the sales of British goods in other countries. All right, so I'm curious, what what were the main draws to that very first World's Fair? Well, sadly, it it didn't have a sun sphere or a wig sphere, but Mm. it did have its own showy architectural icon. It was called the Crystal Palace, and this is actually the building where the different exhibits were held. It was this enormous iron and glass structure designed by this greenhouse builder named Joseph Paxton, and his design beat out a ton of other entries. In fact, it was such a hit with the public that Paxton was later knighted for his contribution. But aside from that palace, the the fair also boasted arts and crafts exhibits from different countries, as well as, you know, science displays. They had this boat race that eventually morphed into the America's Cup, which is pretty awesome. Oh, wow. Yeah. And in total, the various displays attracted a stunning six million visitors, which is right around a third of Britain's population, right? That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, most recent World's Fairs aren't very profitable, but that first one definitely was. Like, Britain made so much money off the event that they established not one, but three national museums. The Victoria and Albert Museum, the Science Museum, and the Natural History Museum. Holy cow. So I'm I'm Mm -hmm. guessing it's that success that got all these other countries interested in, in getting in on this expo action. Yeah, and and the U.S. was the first one to line up and give it a try, though uh, our first attempt wasn't that great. We actually uh, copied the Crystal Palace exhibition, and we built it in Bryant Park in New York City. Oh, right, where we used to work. And that's uh, that's interesting that there was actually a World's Fair there. 
I know it's hard to believe, but uh, despite the fact that they pretty much stuck to uh, London's formula, New York's exhibition was way less successful. In the end, the organizers lost so much money that the U.S. didn't host another event like that for over 20 years. Yeah, you know, probably the earliest World's Fair in the U.S. I remember hearing about, I, I think would be the 1893 Expo in Chicago. And, you know, that's the one where the city was really looking to celebrate Reconstruction. This was following the Great Fire. So they went all out with the fair's design and the exhibits. Like, yeah, I think they got the same guy who designed Central Park, that you know, Olmsted, of course, to, to lay mm-hmm. out the grounds. And supposedly his work on the project was so impressive that L. Frank Baum later used it as inspiration for the Emerald City and the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, I mean, that fair sounded super fun for so many reasons. Like, uh, I'd read that Nikola Tesla and Thomas Edison were competing that year with their own electric lighting exhibits, which would have been (laughs) so fun to see. Yeah. Um, Plus, a bunch of famous snacks came out that year, like uh, Juicy Fruit Gum, Cracker Jacks, and, you know, you got to brace yourself for this one, Cream of Wheat. Cream of Wheat. Now, I I hesitate to admit this, but... Actually, as a kid, I was a big fan of cream of wheat. But um, <laughs> It's a good snack. <laughs> but as exciting as instant porridge must have been for those fairgoers, I mean, we can probably agree that the real showstopper of that year was the debut of the world's first Ferris wheel. Now, it was invented by this 33-year-old guy from Pittsburgh. He was an engineer. His name was George Washington Gale Ferris Jr., quite the name. Wow. But the wheel was 264 feet tall, could hold about 60 people at once, And the Ferris wheel was a huge success, not surprisingly. I mean, I can only imagine what this must have looked like to people. And thousands of people ponied up, I think it was 50 cents a piece, to take this 20-minute ride on the new contraption. I mean, 20 minutes, can you imagine being on one of these things for that long? That's pretty crazy. I mean, that sounds torturous to me. But to be fair, the public hadn't actually seen anything like that before. Even the European fairs to that point hadn't had these feature attractions that were just fun for fun's sake, like the Ferris wheel. But the Chicago Fair changed all of that. And from then on, nearly every World's Fair has included a fun zone dedicated to rides and attractions that you might see at like theme parks or amusement parks. And actually, we should just put a pin in that for now because we'll get back to that theme park connection a little later. All right, well, I do have to say that I, I kind of like that America's first big contribution to these events was adding fun stuff like the rides and the games. I, I, I do only wish that, that the games had brought in enough money to make the fair more sustainable, you know? Yeah, so I was actually stunned by the numbers. There have been a little over 100 World's Fairs held in over 20 countries since that first one in the mid-19th century. But their golden age ended quite a while ago. Once World War I hit, they never really regained their popularity. And I think that's partly because as fun as the fairs have become, after the Ferris wheel, entertainment gradually got easier and easier to come by. In terms of transportation, you had stuff like highways and planes and high-speed trains, all of which made it possible to travel to faraway places rather than waiting for the world to come to you. And the kind of life-changing, futuristic gadgets that the fairs have become famous for showcasing, like TV and radio changed all of that. Instead of that fuss and that expense of going to an expo hundreds of miles away, you got that information brought right into your home. Yeah, I know. If you think about, you know, fast forwarding to today, we have the Internet on top of everything else. So I guess there's also this attitude of, you know, like, why bother attending anything when you can get live updates on your phone or just watch these videos of of just the best bits, you know, of the fair online. Exactly. And I want to make sure we circle back to this idea of World's Fairs kind of going obsolete because there's so much more to say about it. But for now, let's just revel in the nostalgia and and talk about some of our all-time favorite expos. All right. That sounds fun. But before we get to it, let's take a quick break. 
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world from smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports on stages and at the box office. Women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to women take the mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about the world's greatest world's fairs. Okay, well, so we obviously haven't had the chance to attend one ourselves, but based on everything you've heard and read, what would you say was your favorite world's fair? Well, I mean, of course, it's tough to pick just one because they all brought something strange or cool to the table. But just looking at this in terms of historical interest, I'd probably have to go with the 1939 World's Fair that was held in New York. And, you know, of course, what's unique about this one is that the planning for it really began at the height of the Great Depression. And the fair itself was opening at the tail end of that era. And it was really seen as a way to boost morale and sort of get the nation back to thinking positively about the future and it was a colossal effort from, you know, everything from government agencies to corporations, all of these other smaller organizations from all over the world. And it was such a big effort that when all these pavilions and exhibitions were finally finished, the project spanned over 1,200 acres in Queens. And it was formerly an ash dump in that spot. And the total cost, just looking at this, it was over $160 million dollars. I mean, first of all, 1,200 acres just sounds like so much space. That's insanity to me. But also that budget, like if you think about $160 million, 
that's a crazy amount to spend, especially during the Depression. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, in fact, FDR gave the opening address at the fair, and he described the country's participation as America having, quote, hitched her wagon to a star of goodwill. So there was a lot riding on the success of the World's Fair, and at least in terms of public reaction, it was a huge success. There were more than 44 million people who attended the fair over this two-season run, and of course, there were some very famous guests, including, you know, visits from King George VI and Queen Elizabeth, and they made a special presentation at the British Pavilion during that visit. That's pretty cool. Actually, I remember from when we were at Metal Floss, like uh, FDR threw a picnic for them when they came and he served them hot dogs. And it was the first time the king and queen had right. hot dogs, which I love. But, you know, considering the origins and that it started with Prince Albert, you'd almost expect like more royals to visit these things. Yeah, I think it happened from time to time. But the 1939 fair was a special case because it didn't focus only on the current achievement of nations. Instead, the theme of the 30 fair was the world of tomorrow. So, you know, this idea was to really highlight the possibilities of the future, or as FDR put it, the hope that, quote, the years to come will break down the many barriers to intercourse between nations. I mean, that's actually kind of heartbreaking when you remember that World War II was just around the corner at that point. Yeah, the fair in New York probably would have actually stuck around for a third season if things hadn't escalated so quickly in Europe at that time. I mean, you know, war was looming on the horizon, and the fair ended up closing earlier than some had hoped, and it ultimately left the event over budget as usual. But still, most exhibitors and attendees would say that the fair was a resounding success. So what kind of exhibits were people responding to so positively? Well, one of the biggest draws was a GM exhibit. It was dubbed Futurama. And this was this expansive model of the city of the future. And and they were looking at the far-flung year of 1960. So who knew what was going to (laughs) happen then? And so you had things like skyscrapers and multi-level highways and plenty of landing pads for helicopters and low-flying planes. And guests would board this little train and take a 15-minute tour through the model city. And Honestly, the public went crazy for it. There was something like 25 million people actually had taken the ride by the time the fair closed. I mean, it's funny because like skyscrapers and highways, like none of that feels super futuristic or like people are even using their imaginations. All that stuff obviously would come around in like the next 20 years. So where's this hankering for things like, uh, I don't know, jet propelled sneakers or robot butlers? (laughs) I don't know about rocket shoes, but there was definitely one robot at the 1939 fair. His name was Electro the Moto Man, and he was (laughs) the main attraction of Westinghouse Exhibition. And according to reports, crowds routinely waited in these three-hour lines for their chance to meet Electro. And really, if 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 you look at the timing there, he's widely considered to be one of the world's first recognizable robots. So this wasn't just a guy in a costume or something. Like, it actually performed robotic functions? Oh, man, could it ever. So just reading the list of the things it could do. I mean, first of all, actually, just to back up a little bit, this thing was seven feet tall, weighed 250 pounds. So even on just size alone, the crowds were probably dazzled by this thing. But mm-hmm. all right, so, so here's what he was programmed to be able to do. I think there were 26 mechanical tricks for the audience to see. They included walking, talking, counting, <laughs> Blowing up balloons and mango, the biggest of all, even smoking a cigarette. So, But not enjoying you know, and, it. And Electra actually came loaded with corny jokes to amuse your buddy. So it was, it was pretty impressive to see what he could do. But I, actually, just looking at all the features, there was a record player embedded in his chest, and it gave him access to a pretty impressive 700-word vocabulary. 
so the robot could carry on conversations with audience members. And these talks would include some low-key insults like, my brain is bigger than your brain, which was, you know, not only funny, but probably maybe even a little unnerving for somebody back in 1939, if you think about it. <laughs> I love the idea of this, like, robot insulting you and then, like, taking a puff of a cigarette and then insulting you and taking a puff of a cigarette. But yeah, it sounds like the visitors weren't too put off by him, right? Like, I mean, they kept turning up to wait in these three-hour-long lines, I guess, right? Yeah, and so, and, and, and he wasn't the only feature there. I mean, Electro actually brought a friend when he returned for the second season, and this was this robotic English terrier named Sparko. Sure. Now, Sparko could bark, could sit, could beg, just like a normal dog. And then when the fair eventually packed up shop in 1940, they weren't done. Electro and Sparko took their show on the road. And I was looking at this article found on History.com, and here's what it had to say about it. Quote, after spending World War II in the company's basement and not contributing to the war effort, Electro and Sparko were dusted off and sent off to tour fairs, movie sets, and other spots around the country, where they continued to delight and inspire generations of children. I've got to admit, I thought the 1939 fair was going to be pretty bland, but between this time machine ride and, uh, and a robot that smoked cigarettes, I, I've got to say, <laughs> I, I think you've won me over. All right. Well, it was really hard to choose just one fair. And, you know, even once you narrow it down, you're left with all kinds of weird exhibits. Like, apparently there were a slew of other quote-unquote girly shows that year, including one called Living Magazine Covers. Visitors basically would pay a fee to enter and photograph these topless models posing in sets that were built to look like magazine covers. Uh, I mean, I'm kind of surprised that was allowed, especially, you know, considering how many kids were probably running around. Well, that's the thing. So the NYPD actually made a sweep of the fair in order to try and crack down on some of the more lewd attractions. So they get to the magazine exhibit, and I think many people expected it to be shut down, but they decided to give it a pass. And the reason was because they considered it art. It was just, you know, <laughs> art, Mango. And, and it might sound like a win for the exhibit's owner, who was named Jack Sheridan, but actually he wasn't happy about this because he worried that that art label would drive away his customers. <laughs> so classy. Yeah. But all right, now that you've had your say, it's my turn to talk about my favorite World's Fair. And to do that, we'll have to hop in our General Motors sponsored time machine and fast forward all the way to 1964. Oh, wow. All right. Well, that sounds great. But first, <laughs> let's take one more quick break. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other. As Infinity presents... A new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. 
Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world from smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports on stages and at the box office. Women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to women take the mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. Okay, well, so I picked the 1964 World's Fair because it's probably the one I wish I most could have gone to. And I know I'm not alone because it still gets referenced today. All right, we're going to have to remind me why that is exactly. But just thinking back to the time to, to kind of set the scene for where we were, I mean, that was a big year in general. You've got the Civil Rights Act passed that year. Muhammad Ali became the heavyweight champion. You know, of course, the Beatles were taking America by storm at that time. And you know, so, of course, this, this would have been a memorable year without this awesome World's Fair. But, but re- remind me why it was such a big deal. Yeah, so obviously America had a ton going on, and maybe some of that swagger worked its way over to the World's Fair because it's pretty impressive. So for starters, there was an exhibition where a guy flew around wearing a jetpack. It was originally built for the U.S. Army, and apparently you could fly a distance of 815 feet or go as fast as 60 miles per hour. And while the pilot didn't get too far, like off the ground or go that fast— he was a star performer in the fair's Wonderworld musical, which, you know, I guess is nothing to sneeze at. Once you said jetpack, I was like, yep, that's why I knew Mango would pick the one <laughs> with the jetpack. But, but what about your robot butler? Did the 64 have one of those too? No, but if you ask me, it actually had something better. A robot Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln. That, so, so like the one at, uh, at Disneyland, right? Don't they have a robot Abraham Lincoln? Yeah, so so the strange thing is, it is the one at Disneyland. So remember that theme park connection I mentioned earlier? Yeah. So it, it's not just roller coasters and Ferris wheels that theme parks owe to World's Fairs. The entire concept of highly themed areas filled with different attractions, all of that's lifted from World's Fairs. So what, one of the staples were a bunch of pavilions themed to represent different countries. And, you know, that's something you see reflected in Adventureland or I, I guess the World Showcase at Epcot. And, you know, what's funny is that Epcot was actually, uh, that part was intended to be kind of a permanent World's Fair. Plus, you've got the whole Tomorrowland Park sections and that giant metal sphere at Epcot. Like, even at first glance, it's obvious how much Disney was lifting from the World's Fairs. All right, well, what's the connection between Robot Abraham Lincoln and Disney, though? So, Walt had actually been this lifelong fan of World's Fair, so he was super excited when the 64 exhibition was announced for New York. And he wanted to be a part of it any way he could. And in the end, he got his wish. He, he wound up designing not just one, but four different attractions for the fair. 
And the focal point of all of them were robots, or as Disney called them, uh, audio animatronics. He debuted the technology a year earlier with these birds at his Enchanted Tiki Room attraction at Disneyland. But it was at the 64 World's Fair that this new form of animation really came into its own. And the Lincoln figure from that Illinois pavilion, that was one of the most ambitious robots the company had ever attempted. And why was that? Well, Robot Lincoln had all these complex hydraulic systems that had to be rigged up for his movements. But also, at that point, a robot had actually never been built with any convincing likeness of a real person. So making something that lifelike was really impressive. In fact, when, when National Geographic took an early look at Disney's work in 1963, they concluded that the animatronic Lincoln was quote, alarming in its realism. And when it <laughs> premiered at the fair, I mean, well, what's amazing is that uh, there, there's a story of this five-year-old boy in the audience who freaked out and he looked up at his dad and, and shouted, uh, Daddy, I thought you said he was dead. I'd say that's a pretty real validation right there. But, <laughs> but, but in thinking about reproducing Lincoln, I would think this would be really difficult to pull off because if you think about what they would have had at that point, I mean, they, they probably had a few old pictures, maybe a couple portraits of Lincoln, but I would think that was about it, right? So that's the really cool part. Apparently, the real Lincoln allowed a sculptor to make a mask of his face just two months prior to his assassination. And that's what the Disney artists actually used to make their version as accurate as possible. Like, that just feels so unreal. But yeah. by the time the exhibit was copied and added to Disneyland a year later, it had been overhauled to make it even more convincing. Oh, that's pretty cool. But I'm curious, though, so what were the other three attractions that Walt got involved in? It's a Small World, that, that boat ride. You've got those robot children from around the world singing the same song for 12 long minutes. And right, it, right. that was actually part of the UNICEF Pavilion. It was sponsored by Pepsi, which I, I had no idea. Um, <laughs> there, there was also the Carousel of Progress, which they made for the GE Pavilion. And uh, that was just basically a rotating theater that switched between scenes of robots acting out these domestic scenes. But uh, it also showcased GE products in the process. And lastly, and, and probably best of all, there was the Magic Skyway. And this was at the four Pavilion. I'm trying to remember this, but I, I don't think I've heard about this one. So what, what was the deal with that? So Ford was debuting this brand new sports car that year, the Mustang. I'm sure you've heard of it. Yeah, but, I, uh, I feel like I've heard to, of that before. <laughs> so to help sell the public on this new design, the company teamed up with Disney and they built this ride where fairgoers would board motorless Mustang convertibles and then they just get pulled along this conveyor belt. I mean, that doesn't exactly sound exciting, but but uh, if I had to guess, this is where the robots come in. Is that right? Exactly. So the idea was that the riders would be sent on a trip back in time all the way to the Jurassic Age, and they'd <laughs> encounter intricate scenes of dinosaurs caring for the young or, I guess, squaring off for battle, all sorts of amazing things. I mean, Disney basically treated this Ford money as an excuse to make cool robot dinosaurs, which is awesome. But in the end, everyone was happy. Like, Walt was able to relocate these dinosaur scenes to Disneyland, and they were incorporated there into, I guess, part of the park's railroad. And, and uh, Ford went on to sell 400,000 Mustangs in his first year, which was actually four oh, wow. times what they'd expected. Yeah, that's a huge number, and it's hard to argue with those results. But all right, mm -hmm. well, before we move on to any other sections or any other fairs, was there anything else you wanted to mention about that 64 fair? Yeah, th there were a couple other highlights. So, for instance, uh, I know the 1893 fair hosted Cream of Wheat, which, you know, I guess makes it more special oh, than yeah. other fairs. Yeah. But <laughs> in the 60s, it was Belgian waffles time to shine. And, and technically, the waffles had made their first stateside appearance in the 1962 World's Fair. This was in Seattle. But they didn't make much of a splash there. 
But a few years later, you know, fairgoers just couldn't get enough of these Belgian waffles. And in fact, they were such a hit that waffle maker sales spiked all over the country. And as the New York Times reported in 1965, quote, the Belgian waffles sold like hotcakes. Waffles sold like, I, I feel like they're mixing their breakfast similes <laughs> there, but. <laughs> they are. <laughs> wow. The Times is so much better now. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, what's next, though? You said you, you've got one more, right? Yeah, so you remember the BIE from earlier? That's that organization that oversees the official World's Fairs. Right. They actually have all kinds of rules about who can host exhibitions and how often they're allowed to occur. So, for example, the current rule is that one large exposition can be held every five years and one smaller one can be held in between. And another big rule is that only one event is allowed per country every 10 years. But the U.S. actually broke both of those rules in 1964 because Seattle had just hosted their own big exhibition, which was just two years earlier. Wait, so you're saying the 64 one was, what was it, kind of like a rogue world's fair? Yeah, it was. And and because the fair didn't get permission from BIE, some European countries refused to participate. I mean, they called it an unsanctioned event. And the countries that refused were pretty big countries like France, Britain, Italy. They all sat it out. So what, what did the organizers do to, to fill those spots? Did they just turn to companies or, or what did they do? Yeah, I mean, that, that was part of it. But the fair's rogue status actually had these unexpected benefits to both the U.S. and to some lesser-known nations. Here's how um, this guy Christopher Klein explained it in an article that he wrote for History. Quote, Filling the gap at the fair were smaller geopolitical powers ranging from Thailand to Honduras to Morocco. Fifteen African republics, some newly independent from European colonial powers, also erected exhibits. The fair not only introduced tens of millions of Americans to the languages, history, and food of these more unfamiliar cultures, it also offered the first glimpse at the country's coming demographic shift that would be precipitated by the signing of the 1965 Immigration Act, which opened the U.S. to millions previously denied by national quotas in the same month that the fair closed. Well, that's that's actually pretty incredible. And it's such a bummer to hear about what a force for good these cultural events were for our country, and especially knowing that we've sort of moved on from them. Like, like I was actually reading about how the attendance at the 84 World's Fair in New Orleans was so low, it actually became the first exposition to declare bankruptcy while it was still open. And that <laughs> blow was so strong that no other World's Fair has been held here since then. In fact, after almost 20 years of sustained disinterest in hosting, the U.S. actually withdrew from the BIE back in 2001. And so we, we still contribute these exhibits from time to time, but the country no longer seems interested in taking a larger role in these events. Yeah, I mean, it's sad to think about, but, but you know, just because the U.S. has lost interest in World's Fair doesn't mean the rest of the world has. So few people know this, but World's Fair still take place regularly. There was a big one in Milan in 2015. There was a smaller one last year in Kazakhstan. And there's another big one set for Dubai 2020. Yeah, and actually I read about it. There are still a few groups in the U.S. who are trying to build support for Different ones, like there, there's there's support for a small expo that could be in Minneapolis in 2023, or maybe for a much larger expo in either San Francisco or Houston in 2025. But, you know, I kind of hope we get to see the World's Fair back in the U.S. sometime in, you know, in the not-too-distant future. Yeah, fingers crossed. Actually, well, one of the things that they've done recently is kind of restricted the themes to things that aren't as widely popular. So, I mean, it's like energy or conservation. But I, I think if they shift that back to, I guess, these more open themes of progress and technology in the future, you might get more uh, support for it. 
And I don't know, maybe there's a balance that could be struck between those two. I don't know what, exactly what that would be, but maybe we can go back to your jetpacks. They could be jetpacks that run on canola oil or something like that. Does that seem like a draw a big crowd? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think both futuristic things and uh, environmental things. I'm for it. But uh, while we're waiting for that, why don't we start the fact off? So here's one more awesome thing about the 1964 World's Fair. Did you know that Michelangelo's Pieta was exhibited there? No. So while Italy sat this out, the Vatican didn't, and they lent the sculpture to the fair. But, and for good reason, there was a ton of security around the exhibit. So not only was the artwork protected with plenty of guards, it also came enclosed in bulletproof glass, and visitors could only see it from a moving walkway, which zoomed by at two miles per hour. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, we were talking earlier about that first Futurama exhibit that uh, that GM put on, and it wasn't really that futuristic. You know, talked about roads and helicopters. But in 1964, they decided to one-up themselves, and they put on the sequel— Futurama 2. And Uh in this ride, they showed how (laughs) lunar bases would just be a fact of life and that we'd be using lasers to slice down trees and seaweed farms would be farmed by these aquacopters to feed the world. And, And then, of course, for some reason, a lot of weathermen would live at the South Pole, which weirdly actually feels like the most doable of all the things that I just said. (laughs) That's pretty amazing. So at the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago, people actually used it to make a statement and some Scandinavians decided to protest Christopher Columbus and specifically his, quote, discovery of North America. And they did this by building this giant Viking ship and then sailing it and docking it in the harbor during the fair. They really showed them. Wow. (laughs) All right, well, the San Francisco Expo in 1915 also sounded pretty cool. So not only did the city work hard to rebuild itself just nine years after the massive earthquake there, But it featured things like a telephone line that went all the way to New York so people on the East Coast could hear the Pacific Ocean. And also, for some reason, the Liberty Bell came on tour for it, which that was 1915, so that's been over 100 years, and that was actually the last time that the bell's gone on the road. It's actually just been home in Philadelphia ever since then. (laughs) I love that the Liberty Bell opened for a telephone at at this uh, (laughs) rock uh, event. But um, if you're a foodie, the 1904 St. Louis Expo might be the one to focus on. So there are so many foods that have been on menus for a while, but they all really shined there. And they took on this larger American audience. And this included things like peanut butter, hot dogs, hamburgers, ice cream cones, Dr. Pepper, cotton candy, iced tea, and my favorite, the banana split. Man, that's a pretty good lineup. I'd, I'd show up I know. for all those things. <laughs> all right, well, one of the things that gets overlooked at the World's Fairs, Mango, it's the power of poetry. <laughs> so how do you You didn't mean? see that coming, did you? Well, I did not. <laughs> we're going to go back to the 1901 World's Fair in Buffalo. And at that fair, vendors popularized popcorn as a snack. And they did it by using this chant. I mean, tell me if this doesn't make you want to eat some popcorn. Lovely eyes come shine and glitter. Buy your girl a popcorn fritter. You could see, I mean, just it took <laughs> I'm just opening off, my but, wallet right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they sold a ton of popcorn. But that isn't all. So fruit sellers decided to get in on this rhyming action. Now, this happened three years later in 1904. I guess they had three years to work up something really, really good. And this was a <laughs> Missouri fruit specialist. His name was J.T. Stinson. And he coined the phrase, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. I never heard it. 
<laughs> well, trust me, I think a few other people have. <laughs> well, I love that. I don't even think you like poetry that much and you decided <laughs> to honor it in this big way today. So I, I feel like you get today's trophy. I thought that might take it. Well, thank you very much. And thank all of you guys for listening. If there's any great facts about World's Fairs we have forgotten today, we would love to hear those from you. You can always email us genius at HowStuffWorks.com or call us on our 24-7 fact hotline. That's 1-844-PT-GENIUS. Or as always, hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. But thanks so much for listening. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. (laughs) Jerry Rowland does the exact producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eves Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Did we, did we forget Jason? Jason who? Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.